Hello and welcome to the third episode of The Research Field, a monthly podcast from Chagas for everyone interested in agriculture, crops, the environment, food, horticulture, forestry and rural development research here in Ireland. Presented by me, Sean Duke, and produced with Katrina Boyle, Chagas Science Communication and Outreach Officer. I visited medieval Johnstown Castle recently, home to Chagas Soil and Rural Environment Research, and spoke to three fascinating research officers there. Karen Daly told me about the long history of the castle and how, with the support of funds from the US Marshall Aid Plan for reconstructing Europe following World War II, it became a hub for Irish soil scientists who'd been trained in the USA. Dara O'Hulakon, an agroecologist, told me about his biodiversity research, which has found species decline across a range of Irish landscapes, from the abandoned farms on the Aran Islands to the highly managed and manicured mainland dairy farms. And Per Eric Mellander, manager of the Chagas Agricultural Catchments Programme, told me about efforts to reduce the adverse impact of nutrients and climate change on our rivers. First, let's hear from Karen Daly about the history, the scientific history really, of Johnstown Castle, which was built shortly after the Normans landed here in 1169 and how it became the birthplace and home of Irish soil science. We're in Johnstown Castle here today. Uh, It's fascinating history in terms of science and soil science in particular. Uh, Tell me a little bit about Johnstown Castle and how Chagas ended up here. So the castle itself was built in 1169, but Chagas, or rather the, the Irish government in 1940, acquired the castle. And they acquired it for a very sp- specific purpose. Um, it was to be used for um, education, and specifically agricultural education. So it opened as an ag college. And um, from 1940 until the late 50s, it functioned uh, that way, until the establishment of AFT, which is on Forest Luntus, which is the precursor to this or current organisation. Chagask. And uh, when Chagask was established in 1958, um, soil analysis and soil survey um, became a large feature of the castle and, and, and its role in Wexford. Um, now, the, I believe there's a connection with the famous Marshall Plan, uh, post-war Europe and all that, the American plan. Maybe tell us about that. So as you can imagine, in the 1950s, Irish agriculture wasn't very productive or very intensive. And I think possibly our economy was probably the same. Um, so 1.8 million um, came to Ireland um, from the Marshall Aid Plan to establish um, agricultural research, specifically soil science and soil survey. So that was huge money at the time. And it went into building soil labs and building um, uh, research centres around the country and also training people, which was a very important aspect of, of this funding. So it was used to take recent graduates from Ag Science and UCD, bring them over to the States, which had, which at this stage had developed quite a, um, um, a strong uh, background in soil analysis and soil science and agronomy. And these people were trained in methods in soil analysis and they were trained in crop production, uh, trained in how to establish field trials so that we can um, develop fertilizer and slurry advice for, for building up the nutrient content in soils and for nutrient management training. And I believe there was a, a kind of a need for it because when they looked at the soil, it wasn't that fertile initially going back 
back to you know the early days. Indeed, um, some visitors from New Zealand in the 1950s came to Ireland, and when they looked at the one of possibly the first um, agricultural uh, uh, results from from some of the Irish soils, they were astonished that we could grow anything. The soils were so deficient. They were completely deficient in phosphorus, potassium and many of the trace elements and major nutrients that are really essential to grow crops, especially grass. So we really needed these soil scientists. So, so, so they came back and they made a difference, I, I presume. They came back with methods for soil analysis in their pocket and with ideas in how to set up field trials and research. So they came back with a wealth of education. They came back with PhDs. So they went as recent graduates, came back with PhDs and lots of ideas in how to set up a field trial to um, establish what is what are the best methods for growing different crops and um, what are the optimum fertilizer application rates and how and very importantly how to survey and how to analyze soils so that we can tailor everything to the different soils around the country because you'll also have to remember up until then soil in ireland was just a blank page there was no map of soils um, unlike other countries who had possibly developed soil maps, we had nothing really. And so we had to establish the National Soil Survey. So when that was established, soil surveyors, um, also trained in the States, um, went from county to county, digging pits, jumping into the pits, and describing each horizon and layer of the soil um, from the top right down to one or 1.5 metres and looking at the texture, uh, developing methods to um, hand texture in the field and uh, bringing soil samples that they take from their survey and reconnaissance uh, surveys, bringing them back to Johnstown Castle and um, bringing them into the lab, which was inside the castle on the top floor. So much of the very, very early and very first soil descriptions, soil mapping and soil analysis happened in the top floor of Johnstown Castle itself. Right. And where are we with the soil surveys of Ireland now at the moment? Have, have we done the whole island at this stage or are we still doing it? So the soil survey is complete. Um, in 1958, the National Soil Survey was established, as I mentioned. That was a county by county basis uh, detailed survey that was halted in the 1980s due to lack of funding. But in recent years, say from I think possibly 2007, we managed to fill in the gaps. So we filled in the gaps with digital soil surveys. So Back in the 50s, it depended on somebody walking into a field and digging a pit and a lot of manual uh, labour and ground survey. But with emerging technologies, um, we were able to digitise much of the terra incognita, as it was called, which was the unknown aspects or areas of the country and fill in the gaps. And now we have a complete national map. Which is of great benefit, of course, to farmers. And I'm just looking at this green book here. I mean, it feeds into the advice you can give them. Absolutely. So the more information you know about the soils on your farm, the better we can tailor the advice to give you in terms of its nutrient needs and its uh, drainage properties and soil texture. Um, so the green book is, is like the Bible for crop production. It's, it tells farmers, um, depending on the variety of different crops that are out there, exactly what major nutrients such as nitrogen, phosphorus, sulfur, potassium and other trace elements as well that are needed in the soil and just so that you can optimise everything and keep the system in balance so that you're not putting out too much and you're not 
depriving the soil and making it deficient in any particular element or nutrient. So it's all about trying to keep everything in balance. And the only way to do that is to try and collect as much information as you can. And you'll do that through soil analysis. So in terms of where we've come from and where we are now, uh, how are we now in terms of soil science in Ireland and the advice we can give to farmers just to finish up? Well, soil science in Ireland now is still as important and as relevant as ever. And we may have... um, Um, answered a lot of the nutrient deficiency questions back in the late 50s and 60s to try and address our deficiencies in Irish soils. So we can say a lot and we we know a lot about nutrients and trace elements, but the big uh, burning question now is carbon and how, how Irish soils can store carbon. So we do need to know what the potential of Irish soils is for um, storing carbon stocks and for sequestering carbon. So uh, carbon and soil texture in terms of clay and sand and silt will will tell us about the I guess the carbon storage, but also then about the how the soil will respond to rainfall and drought, and that does depend on its texture and its drainage properties. Thanks very much, Karen. That was fascinating. Now for the latest research news, let's hear from Katrina Boyle. Well done to Dermot Sheehan, who was recently elected as chair of the International Dairy Federation Standing Committee for Dairy Science and Technology at the recent World Summit in Istanbul. Dermot is a researcher in Chagas Park Food Research Centre who specialises in cheese research. Researcher Kieran Jordan, who recently retired from Park, received the Federation's Leader Recognition Award at the same event. Kieran Mead, a researcher at Chagas Grange, was awarded the Animal Health All-Star Award 2019 from Coil Veterinary Products at an award ceremony in Galway recently. A recent large-scale satellite analysis of flooding was published in Chagas's open-access peer-reviewed journal, the Irish Journal of Agricultural and Food Research. Lead author Rob O'Hara says that after the floodwaters receded, the underlying soils remained saturated for several weeks. The impact to farmers was significant where winter fodder stores were exhausted and replacement grass could not be grazed. Combining the Sentinel flood map with multispectral images from the NASA US Geological Survey Landsat 8 satellite, the impact of persistent or late winter floods on spring grass growth was observed. Where soils were still saturated in April, the satellite images indicated significantly less growth and did not recover to expected levels until July. Thanks, Katrina. Biodiversity, as we know, is declining at an alarming rate in many parts of the world, including Ireland. The big question is, can we protect our biodiversity and also produce the food we need? My next guest, Dara O'Hulahan, has studied the biodiversity decline right across Ireland and he believes we can. Well, unfortunately, biodiversity has been declining throughout the countryside over the last 40 or 50 years. And as most of the countryside is farmland, therefore farmland biodiversity is declining also over the last 50 years with the introduction of the first common agricultural policy. And the main, one of the main ways of identifying this is looking at different indicators of, of biodiversity. So, for example, if we look at the farmland bird index, so most, some of the birds that are most threatened in this country are associated with farmland. Some of the flagship birds, such as corncrake or curlew, which are dependent on more traditional farming methods, have declined. So they would be indicators of the general decline in biodiversity. Okay, so maybe you could give me some examples of some of the different... We've got quite a diverse farming landscape, if you like, Aran Islands versus a dairy farm. Maybe they'd be a good 
Yeah. Okay, so, so we focus our research on a variety of different farming enterprises and a gradient of farming. Uh, so a gradient from very extensive farmland such as the Aran Islands. And we must remember that all the habitats we have in this country are as a result of agriculture. So if we want to retain the habitats we do have, then we need farmers to actively manage the landscape. And that's the case in the Aran Islands. And it has a huge knock-on effect for tourism, for example, where there's maybe a quarter of a million tourists visiting the islands each year to see these small farms that have been managed by the farmers over the last few generations. Unfortunately, again, the quality of some of these habitats are declining on the Aran Islands because of abandonment. They're very unproductive from a profit point of view, so there's a, there's a danger that habitats will become encroached and that we will lose our species-rich grassland. So that's one extreme where we're looking at very extensive farms. When we're looking at more intensive farms, it's important that we also include those in the mix. They also play a very important role in retaining more kind of general or more common habitats. And if we looked at studies we've done recently, if you look at a more intensive dairy farm, for example, you're talking it has six or seven kilometres of hedgerow, which is a very important habitat, not only for biodiversity, but it also has other ecosystem services such as carbon sequestration or water quality benefits. And then there's a multitude of other habitats that are unfortunately are becoming less common on some of our more intensive land because of land use change, as we spoke about earlier, and are also threatened with becoming uh, abandoned in, in our more extensive systems where scrub can encroach on some of these habitats also. And is it the big question, of course, we get on to some of the specifics, but how to accommodate how we do farming with biodiversity, isn't that what we're about? Absolutely. So we must remember another very important species in the habitat is the farmer. And we need farmers to actively manage these landscapes. And for very extensive habitats, such as the Aran Islands, the, the entire farm is the habitat. For some of our more intensive land, obviously there's a need to produce product, be it milk or be it beef. But there's also opportunities to produce those farmland products or those agronomic products whilst also retaining and sustaining the habitats we do have. So we don't need to just focus exclusively on just the habitat or focus exclusively on just farmland product production. We can get a happy medium between the two. And by retaining some of the habitats that we currently do have or by enhancing them in some way or improving the quality, there are also benefits not only, as I said, for biodiversity, but there are also benefits in relation to carbon storage and sequestering carbon and also benefits in relation to water quality. So we can try and achieve our production targets in relation to Food Harvest 2025, for example, but it's also trying to agree with targets under the Water Framework Directive or objectives under Kyoto Protocol. We can do both. Hopefully we can do both. Hopefully. Okay, and what have you found, generally speaking? Maybe we could talk about, uh, say, terrestrial biodiversity first. So if we, if we consider the, some of the habitats, and again, our recent survey looking at hedgerow quality, and again, hedgerow is probably the dominant habitat we have throughout the landscape. So we focus on about 110 farms, intensive farms, spread across tillage, beef and dairy. And unfortunately, we found using the indicators we were working with, the, the, the predominant or most of these hedgerows were of, of poor quality and again it's largely because they are either overmanaged or undermanaged so if they're overmanaged they're being cut too frequently they're not getting a chance to flower so there's no pollination or no pollinator resources there if they're not getting a chance to grow tall there's less of a nesting habitat for some of our birds the other challenge is hedgerows that have been undermanaged so they're now becoming gappy so they're no longer acting as a connection or a connectivity pathway or as a wildlife corridor so so the challenges of overmanaging and undermanaging are two of the main challenges in relation to habitat that's quality. interesting because i always thought that hedgerows should be maybe just left alone but no they need some management 
The problem is, so hedgerows, if you do leave them alone, they no longer function as a hedgerow. They now, not only will they not no longer function in relation to stock proofing and biosecurity benefits, but also they now become gappy and they turn into a tree line, which is still a habitat, but it's no longer a hedgerow habitat. And this is probably not just, it's not just true for farmland habitats, but for habits throughout the landscape, currently society likes over manicured habitats in our own gardens, in our parklands and areas like that. Whereas biodiversity favours habitats that aren't overmanaged, things that are a little bit rough and ragged around the edges suits biodiversity, whereas these overly managed habitats do not suit biodiversity. Isn't that uh, an important thing though, really, because that speaks to our psychology on, on this subject, because where I live and where a lot of people live, you've, we're in a row of houses and a little garden in the front, and if you let yours go totally wild, the neighbours wouldn't be too pleased. That That's the case and or, or they think there's something going on or they think someone has died in that house and the same has happened with me where I'm living so I'd let margin between my hedge and the road grow longer to let pollinator resources and it's now the talk of the area that I, he's, I'm lazy or something Mad like scientist. that. scientist. Well not only that but I'm only new to the area so they probably think I'm, I'm neglectful in some way compared to the previous owner who had a fantastically manicured garden but had very few resources for biodiversity. So there's probably a need for a mindset change that we need these, particularly in some of our large landscapes and some of our large parklands, that you don't need to be cutting grass every five to seven days and having this green carpet, which isn't doing much for biodiversity. If we can let some of these or patches or plots within it and let them naturally flower, they provide a lot of resources. They also look more aesthetically pleasing than just this green carpet, not only for us, but they also look more pleasing for biodiversity so they will get to be utilised more by biodiversity. And, and hopefully become socially acceptable to, to do that. Absolutely. So the, when we consider hedgerows of maybe 50 or 60 years ago, the norm was to have bigger hedgerows and wider hedgerows. The norm nowadays seems to be on certain farms to have these overly manicured and that's the current concept of what we think is or what society seems to think is a well-managed hedgerow which seems to be an overly managed hedgerow but we're seeing now that as we said if we let things grow a little bit particularly let them grow higher they can still function in relation to acting as a hedgerow they don't need to impact too much on the farm in that case you're also reducing the effort needed to cut your hedgerow every every year or every two years and just benefits the biodiversity so we're under a little bit of pressure. Is it the same for aquatic uh, biodiversity? So again, yes, it probably is. So, and, and the reason why aquatic biodiversity is very important is it is used as a main indicator of water quality. So, for example, there's ways of assessing water quality, looking at the nutrients, be it, be it phosphorus or nitrogen. But that only gives you a, a snapshot in time indicator of the water quality. By looking at the insect community in the stream, that tells you, well, what is the background conditions over the last few months of that stream? So whereas there might have been a spike or a reduction in, in, in phosphorus or nitrogen or sediment, the indicators in the stream, so the insect indicators would give you an indicator of the quality. And a final question then, I mean, this subject, people can get a bit down and think, God, you know, things seem to, we're losing bees, we're losing all kinds of species of whatever. Um, can we improve the situation? Is it possible to have our modern way of life of doing agriculture or living and, and also to, to try and at least halt the decline in biodiversity and maybe restore it? I think we can definitely do more. I think there are great efforts being undertaken at currently. We, if you consider there's nearly 50,000 farmers in some of our agri-environment schemes, there's about 20 things called EIPs or European Innovative Partnerships, which are farmer-led groups that are undertaking work uh, to improve biodiversity within their landscape. I think it is a challenge. 
I also think society needs to focus more on biodiversity and if we're rewarding certain farmers for producing more beef or more producing more milk, then the farmers that are producing more biodiversity or cleaner water or cleaner air should also be rewarded and incentivized to do so. That's a good point, very good point. Thanks very much Dara for telling us Thank about you. biodiversity. Now for information on some upcoming research events, let's hear again now from Katrina Boyle. This Science Week, the Festival of Farming and Food will take place at venues all around the country. Along with a large number of events aimed at schools and careers, there are a number of events aimed at the general public. On Sunday, November 10th, in Kilkenny's McDonough Junction Shopping Centre, which was formerly a workhouse, researchers will show how science has advanced to protect against potato blight. Let us know what you think trees do for us in our interactive exhibit and see how forestry can help reduce climate change effects and sequester carbon. On Monday, November 11th, the Vision of Research evening event takes place in historic Oak Park House in Carlow, Chagas's head office. Featuring the most innovative and compelling images of research and innovation activities taking place all over Ireland, there will also be a chance to meet the researchers and find out more about the science behind the images. Also on the evening of Monday, November 11th, at Chagas Grange in Meath, Chagas joins forces with the EU Health and Food Safety Office for the public lecture, Antibiotics, Animal Health and Climate Action. On Thursday, November 14th in Chagas Moor Park for Moy, TV presenter Katrina Devereaux will host the 60-minute science event, Feeding the Future, the Science of Sustainability and Climate Change. The Festival of Farming and Food is sponsored by Science Foundation Ireland and Chagask. The theme of this year's Science Week is Climate Action. Please see www.teagasc.ie for more details on how to book these free events. Thanks, Katrina. Now, the health of our river catchment systems can be adversely affected by excessive inputs of nutrients such as nitrates and phosphorus, as well as flooding and extreme weather events. Per Eric Mellander, Chagas hydrologist and manager of an agricultural catchment programme which monitors the health of six diverse Irish river systems, is part of a team looking into ways to mitigate such factors. Let's hear from him now. So you're a hydrologist, uh, I believe. So tell me about the project that you're involved in, the major project here that you're involved in. Yes, so the project I'm involved in is um, the Agricultural Catchments Programme. And and we're working with uh, uh, six different uh, river catchments around in Ireland. And they're all roughly 10 square kilometres. And uh, they're chosen to represent intense agricultural land uh, under different physical settings, so different soil types, different geology, and, and uh, different parts of the country. So, so the main focus then is obviously on the nutrients going into the river systems. That's right, and, and we're looking into the nutrients using a conceptual model of the nutrient transfer continuum, we call it, and that is we're following the nutrients from the source, uh, and then how these may be mobilized and transferred via different transfer pathways in the landscape and then delivered to, to water, to a river. And it's very specific, like I believe you're monitoring it regularly over the last decade, the river systems, like is it every few minutes or something? Yes, we have, in each river, uh, we have uh, a little, an outdoor lab you may say, it, it's, it's uh, taking samples of the water and analysing it uh, for uh, nitrate and phosphorus concentration every 10 minutes. And at the same time, we're also measuring the river discharge. So with this, we can calculate 
not, not only the concentration of the neutrons, but also the load, the mass of neutrons that's leaving the catchment. So in a sense, you can tell the health of the river, if you like, from this process, in and out process of nutrients. Uh, that's correct. We can see, we see the, can we get, get a, a good picture of, of uh, the, the neutron concentrations in the river, but at the same time we're also having surveys made for ecology in the rivers, and, and that, that is also something we want to link to the water quality with uh, the response in the aquatic ecology. And you have quite a number of farmers involved in this. Yes, we are, there are six uh, river catchments, as I said, uh, across the country, and there are all, each of them about 10 square kilometers. And uh, within this uh, area, there are about 300 farmers uh, that we collaborate with. And of course, that's voluntary. They, they, you know, it wouldn't be possible without them volunteering to allow you to work with them. No, that's right. Uh, there, it, it's, uh, uh, we're on, on commercial land and we're very thankful for, for being able to be, be there and, and, and do our work. Well, I would imagine the farmers, of course, the advice, they might get advice back ultimately that will benefit. I mean, what kind of things can you say to an individual farmer uh, that would help them? Well, all of their lands has been uh, soil tested, so we can give feedback directly and give uh, uh, direct information on, on based on their own on, on the results from their farms. Okay, so it's from their point of view, this is pretty valuable. Yes, I, I say so, and, and they get uh, uh, we will tell them results and uh, of, of not only of course the, the analysis of, of the soils, but also from the research and. Uh, We'll have farmers' meetings, and, and there are dedicated um, advisors on within each catchment, so they get first first-hand information on, on everything there. And do you um, produce a report then at the end of each year, or a couple of years, on what you have discovered with the various researches? Yeah, th there is a big focus on uh, publishing uh, all all our work in scientific papers in, in journals, uh, so. That, that's how we inform this. So over the, say, 10 years or so of the program, then what are some of the, say, nice papers or bits of research or new knowledge that has emerged? Well, one very important part is uh, that w when we're designing measures to mitigate nutrients, there is nothing as a one-size-fits-all because it's a very heterogeneous landscape. And uh, we, we have... Um, provide a lot of information on, on the processes behind how nutrients are moved in, in the landscape and where we can target efficient uh, mitigation measures. And, and, and not, not only do we want uh, very targeted measures, but uh, these measures then if, uh, will take less land out of production. So there's an interest from all sides to, to do this. Less land out of production, yeah. Okay, keep more land in production. Yes, uh, and also to use, use all the nutrients in the best way, so you get the most out of them without... The optimum way. Yes, win-win situations. And obviously you don't want to overuse either. No, no, that's right. And, and if you do so, uh, of course, that, that, that's a big cost for a farmer, but also it will have a negative effect on the water. Um, how much has the uh, 
unusual weather, I guess, over the last 10, 20 years uh, impacted on the catchment systems, do you think? Can you see it in your data? We can see this. Uh, we actually have been monitoring uh, water quality during a time of big change, and we can see not only the long-term uh, change or this, this kind of decadal change uh, that can be expressed by, by large oceanic scale weather systems. But we can also see the effect of, of small, smaller weather extremes. You know, was two summers ago it was very hot, something like that. You can see this in the data, the impact? Yes, we can see clear signals of this. Uh, and this, the signals of these things vary also in the different physical settings. So the response of, of climate change is not the same in, in different catchments. We're seeing in some some catchments, this might have a, a an weather offset might have a very negative effect. In others, it might even be a positive effect uh, due to more. If it's more rain, it could be. And if it's more rain and nutrients are not mobilized or transferred to water, uh, there will be a dilution, and, and you might see this as a positive effect of, of lower concentrations of nutrients. In other catchments. Uh, more water would, of course, mean if they're mobilized and transferred that, that, that you have a more flush out of nutrients. And, and this will vary depending on the physical character of the catchments as well. If it's surface uh, water driven or if it's groundwater driven, and, and the response will be slightly different. And these climate effects have become more pronounced, I would imagine, have they? They have. Uh, and we've seen, for example, last year, 2018, uh, we had. Uh, many different types of weather extremes represented. We had some big flushouts, we had uh, wet, very wet weather, and we had uh, winter conditions, uh, also a, a heavy drought in summer. And, and they all affected uh, in different ways in the different, all, all the different catchments. So you, you've got a big task ahead of you. <laughs> Thanks, Perik. Per Eric, uh, I know English is not your first language, but you, you were very, very uh, good to give us this interview and tell us all about the river catchment systems and uh, what you're learning about it. Thank you. That's all for this week. I hope you enjoyed listening. We'd be very happy to get feedback, suggestions or comments from listeners. And if you'd like to reach us, please email me, Sean Duke, presenter, the research field at seancduke at gmail.com. You can subscribe to the podcast on the Apple Podcasts, iTunes platform, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Overcast, Radio Public, Breaker, and of course on the Chagas website, chagas.ie, by searching under Publications First and then Podcasts. Until next time, so it's goodbye for now from all of us here at the Research Field. <laughs>